Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to today's episode of Equipping You in Grace. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about applying contentment to idolatry. This is part of a larger series that we're doing, talking about contentment and applying it to our lives. And so uh, this is really, really important because as I've gone on radio shows now and even uh, podcasts, one of the things that they're surprised about that's in my book on contentment is there is a conversation that I'm having about idolatry and, and the ways in which it can impact uh, our understanding of contentment. Now, idolatry is anything in our lives that we attach supreme value and worth to. Contentment is a disposition of the heart. Now, we're going to say more about both of those ideas uh, in this episode and throughout this series. But I wanted to start here because I think uh, for a lot of us, we might not have really given a lot of due consideration about what the Bible says about idolatry and maybe even we are committing and have actively in our lives idols that need to be rooted out. Now, Proverbs 4.23 says, for example, that we're to guard our heart with all due diligence. Uh, the Puritan John Flavel wrote a very famous and helpful book, uh, Keeping and Guarding the Heart. Uh, we're, we're told in, uh, at the end of 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so we need to assess and to examine the various ways and to understand what an idol is and do we have them in our life because they displease and dishonor God. Now, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but that's just the start uh, to give you a little taste of where we're headed today. You know, by some estimates, we spend over 12 hours a day uh, consuming some kind of me media. In fact, the average person, it's, he, they spend over two hours a day just on social media alone. So when you start counting the hours in a day that's a lot of time spent potentially staring at a screen or scrolling through posts we live in a day and an age when distractions are everywhere from sports and pop culture to work to money how much time though in comparison to that do you spend focusing on and and growing in and enjoying your union with christ it's a question now, not everything that isn't prayer, reading the word, or focusing on God is evil or sinful. And yet, Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where are you storing up your treasure? It's, it's likely that's where your heart is. And so when we place things above God in our hearts or even prioritize something over time with our creator those things become an idol in our lives we read about the Israelites turning to worship a golden calf in Exodus 32 the Israelites grew impatient waiting on Moses to return from talking to God on the mountain and had Aaron make an idol out of their gold our idols may look different today but how often let's ask the question how often do we similarly grow impatient waiting for joy peace happiness and even contentment from God. In turn, we worship uh, other temporary sources of satisfaction. It's easy to rationalize something that isn't an idol, which is why we need to know how to identify those idols in your life. Let me ask you a couple questions. 
What do you usually daydream about? What do you most fear? What could you lose that would make life not worth living? What fills you with irrational anger, anxiety, despondency, or even guilt? What what do you effortlessly spend too much money on? Now, these questions can help identify the part of your heart where potential idols may be pushing God out. Where, where you're attaching ultimate meaning and, and worth to. Colossians 3 says to set your hearts on things above and put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. When we identify idols in our lives, we must repent of our idolatry before God. In doing so, we're humbling ourselves. But but we know that, but he gives more grace. Therefore, God says, uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble in James 4, 6. In this way, when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us, according to James 4, 8. Now, we're no longer owned by sin, because we are no longer under law, but under grace through Christ, according to Romans 6.14. But where do we set our mind? Where can we put our hope? Where, where do we find true contentment? 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And so when we give our heart to something other than God, we're showing that we don't trust the Lord God with our whole life. We're saying there's something that God can't provide. Instead, we cast down our idols in favor of a God who offers us peace, hope, joy, and lasting contentment that nothing in this world will ever provide. So in the New Testament, the words content and contentment are translated from the Greek word archaeo. It means to be possessed of unfailing strength. Now, there's another uh, Greek word, autocrasis, which means strong enough or possessing enough to need no aid or support. And autarkia, which means a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Sufficiency of the necessities of life. So contentment comes as we realize that God is all that we really need and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We can be satisfied in him knowing that he is a supplier of all of our physical needs and spiritual needs. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We know from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man was created with an eternal void that only God can fill. The, the Apostle Paul's ultimate aim was to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made uh, conformable unto his death, Philippians 3.10 says. And so there are few things in life that are really necessary. In fact, God identified just two, food and clothing, 1 Timothy 6, 8. And having food and raiment, let us therefore be content. If we are not content with the basics of food and clothing, we're never going to be content, no matter how many things that we obtain. God has promised to provide for our needs. However, he has not assured us that, that we're going to get all of our wants. You know, we have a tendency to spend our resources on our wants and then worry about our needs. Jesus warned about this concern in Matthew 6, 31-33. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or where shall we be clothed? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When either partner in a marriage becomes self-sufficient, the love relationship is damaged because joy and grace come from giving and receiving. The temptation of Adam and Eve was not simply to taste some forbidden fruit, but they were tempted to be self-sufficient and no longer need God. 
The subtle serpent told them that if they ate the fruit, they would be as gods and, and be able to decide for themselves good and evil, as we see in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. You see, if we desire what God has not given to us, but what he has given to others, we're guilty of coveting. This is a violation of the Ten Commandments, which says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor, nor anything else that is thy neighbor's in Exodus 20, verse 17. And when we expect from possessions or people what only God can give, we turn them into idols and we become guilty of idolatry. For example, if we expect security for money, we make money an idol because only God can give security. Likewise, if we expect fulfillment from wealth or expensive possessions, we make them idols. The same is true if we look uh, to food or to diets alone or even to exercise for health. Someone has wisely observed that Jesus is all we need, but we will not know it until he is all we have. Paul understood this truth by exchanging things for more of Christ. In Philippians 3.8, it says, Yeah, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them, but dung that I might win Christ. Now, in one sense, life is a continual exchange. We exchange time on the job for money. We then exchange money for food. We exchange food for strength. A wise person will exchange things of lesser value for things of of greater value. Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let me ask you some questions here. In what specific ways do you enjoy the presence of the Lord? Are you enjoying your union with Christ, dear Christian? Have you set your affections on getting things that you think will make life happier? Do you become bitter when your possessions are damaged or stolen? When damage does come to your life, possessions or family, do you have the response of Job? Job 121 says, The Lord gave and the Lord take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you rejoice in the wealth of things that money cannot buy, such as health, freedom, a good name, a clear conscience, and eternal salvation, more than temporal possessions? Do you believe that God has given you all that you need? Now, the concept of idolatry in the Word of God is powerful, it's complex, it's diverse, and it's even problematic. Even though, as Halliburton and Margaret note, the central theological point in the Bible is the refutation of idolatry, it is ironic that the category that is supposed to be the firmest and even strictest of all exhibits an astonishing fluidity. A theological treatment of the subject of idolatry must consider the close association of idolatry with sexual immorality and greed and attempt to answer fundamental questions. What is idolatry? What constitutes a God? In fact, in the Bible, there is no more serious charge than that of idolatry. Idolatry calls for the strictest punishment, elicited the most disdainful polemic, prompted the most extreme measures of avoidance, and was regarded as the chief identifying characteristic of those who were the very antithesis of the people of God, namely the Gentiles. Uh, fundamental to Israel's life and faith were the very first commandment and its exposition in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, which were from early on regarded as touching on every aspect of life. The early church likewise treated idol worship with the utmost seriousness. Idolatry is the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to God, and for that reason, it is the occasion for the severest of divine punishment. The portrayal of the kings in First and Second Kings is especially revealing. Kings are assessed as either good or bad purely on religious grounds, that is, on the question of whether they destroyed or introduced idols. 
Omri, one of the greatest kings of Israel, is a case study on this point. In spite of his political achievements and the, the might he showed, according to 1 Kings 16.27, he is only mentioned briefly, for he led Israel to provoke the anger of the Lord their God with their worthless idols, as 1 Kings 16.26 says. The theme of judgment on idolatry is widespread in the New Testament also. The theological grounds for the judgment of idolatry is a jealousy of God. The belief that idolatry arouses God's jealousy is a sturdy Old Testament theme with a long history. It is introduced in the second commandment in Exodus 25 and in Deuteronomy 5, 8-10 and in Exodus 34, 14. Do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. It is the explanation of the name Jealous. In fact, all the, the references to this in the books of law to God's jealousy have to do with idol worship. An idol worshipped in Jerusalem in Ezekiel 8.3 is called the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. Now, the conviction that God's jealousy inevitably leads him to stern action is also deeply rooted in the Old Testament. God's jealousy based on his love for those he has redeemed at a great cost, it motivates him to judge his people. Nahum 1.2 says the Lord is a jealous God and avenges. And so the Old Testament is replete with texts in which God's jealousy leads him to destroy the faithless among his people. The warning of 1 Corinthians uh, 10.22 echoes this teaching. A common strategy in the Old Testament for opposing idolatry was that of ridiculing a ridiculing polemic in which the idols are portrayed as powerless and even deceptive. The main examples of this include Psalm 115, 4 through 8, and Psalm 135, 15 through 18, the words of Elijah, the prayer of Hezekiah, and especially the prophets. Such material, it stresses the perishable nature of the idols, their human origins, in the mind, and even the skill of the maker, the lifeless, and the insistence, and insists that idol worship leads only to disappointment and the embarrassment of those who oh, trust in them. Habakkuk uh, 2, 18 through 19 contains all of these elements. The most commonly used Greek term for idol, idolon, occurs over a hundred times. It lends itself to such a polemic and is effectively a term of derision. The established association of the word with in substantiality and falsehood, it provided the pejorative element in the description of an image. Now, Paul reflects such teaching in Romans 1, 18-32 and 1 Corinthians 12, 2. To worship idols is both an error and a foolish vanity, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, Acts 14, 15, and especially 1 John 5, 21, where idols are contrasted with the living and true God. By contrast, the usual Greek term for cultic image, agamaya, had positive associations of even joy and beauty. And so disgust and even contempt for idolatry is also communicated in several derogatory terms used to describe the idols. Idols are unclean things, a common designation in Ezekiel, weak or worthless things, that which is insubstantial and a vanity or an emptiness. The Israelites were not simply to avoid idolatry. The language or the prohibition can hardly be more emotive and urgent. They are utterly detest and abhor the heathen God, as in Deuteronomy 7.25. And so the call to resist pagan pressure for Jews to compromise their religion by contact with idolatry is nowhere more clear than in 
Daniel where the king's rich and presumably idolatrous food is shunned as in Daniel chapter 1. This episode is followed by that of Daniel's three companions who refuse to worship the king's golden image in Daniel chapter 3. And Daniel's refuses to pray to the king in Daniel chapter 6. Now, according to the book of Daniel, such earthly kingdoms will ultimately give way to the everlasting kingdom of the one true God, as in Daniel 2.44, Daniel 4.3, Daniel 4.34, Daniel uh, 6.26, and Daniel chapter 7. And so it's not just that idolatry was one vice among many, which the heathen were guilty. Rather, idolatry is a divining feature of the heathen whose entire way of life is characterized inevitably by this sin. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, read in conjunction with 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, is an early Pauline witness to this conviction. The characterization of the heathen by the three sins of sexual immorality, idolatry, and greed comes through consistently in the Pauline catalog of vice. Furthermore, these three sins are the only vices in the Pauline letters that are considered to be such a threat that they must be fled from. In, in Romans uh, 2.22, Paul takes it for granted that Jews abhor and even detest idols. So opposition to idolatry was, in effect, an exercise in redrawing group boundaries for the people of God set within the wider framework of issues to do with identity and self-definition. And in making clear what they stood for, they took pains to underscore what they stood against. Now, in striking contrast to our neighbors, the religion of Israel prohibited the use of images. Where Deuteronomy 4, 12 through 18 explains that God chooses to make himself known through words rather than a form. Isaiah 40, 18 and 25 reasons the incomparability of the Lord renders all representative forms inadequate. Nonetheless, on numerous occasions, the nation failed to keep the second commandment, as in uh, the golden calf in Exodus 32 through 33, Micah's image in Judges 17 through 18, Jeroboam's bulls in 1 Kings 12, 28 through 33. And now, in dealing with the subject of idolatry, we confront a problem of definition. For the term can be taken to mean both the worship of images and the worship of foreign gods. Both senses, though, are valid. The second commandment extends and even applies to the first. At least in the Israelite understanding, a pagan deity was present in its image. Now, disagreement over the division of the Ten Commandments also belies a close relationship between the first and the second commandment. Whereas the conventional Jewish division takes the opening verse as the first commandment and the prohibitions of worshiping other gods and the worship of images as the second. Augustine, the Roman Catholic, and, and, and the Lutheran traditions consider all of this material to be the first commandment. In most cases, the Old Testament authors do not distinguish between the worship of other gods, the worship of images, and the worship of the Lord through using images. And while a formal distinction between having gods and having images is possible, it might even be useful, especially imploring teaching about the latter. For our purposes, idolatry is taken in the broadest sense, including material related to both. And just as keeping the first commandment was expected to lead to obedience to all the commandments, so idolatry was thought to lead to other sins, like in Romans 1 including, and in particular, sexual immorality. In one sense, the link between sexual immorality and idolatry could not be more concrete. Pagan temples were often the venue for illicit act sexual activities. Religious prostitution was commonly practiced by the cults of the ancient Near Eastern fertility religions, and it is a problem for Israel from the moment they entered the Promised Land, like in Numbers 25.1 and Judges 2.17. This becomes especially prevalent in Judah and Israel during the divided monarchy 
monarchy from Rehoboam in 1 Kings 14.23 to Josiah and 2 Kings 23.7. Now, according to Exodus 34.11-16, the extermination of the inhabitants of the land was commanded so that the Israelites would avoid the practice. Deuteronomy 23.17 forbids all cult prostitution for Israel. Now, prostitution at a cultic level of a festival nature was well attested in places like Corinth and is even mentioned in the Old Testament. It was common in the ancient Near East for orgies to take place at heathens' festivals. Now, Hosea 4, 13-14 probably refers to this kind of activity, where mountaintop sacrifices suggesting a pagan altar and prostitutes are just opposed. Furthermore, possible references in the Old Testament, including Numbers 25-1, where Phineas slaying off Zimri for sexual immorality occurred in the context of pagan sacrifice and Isaiah 57 3 Jeremiah 2 20 Jeremiah 3 6 and, and in Judges 21 19 through 23 even a feast to the Lord at Shiloh was the occasion for the Benjamites to take wives by force the description of the cult of the golden calf can be considered an archetype of the events in Exodus 32 and during the celebration, the people sat down to drink and eat, rose up to play in Exodus 32.6. The verb to play in Hebrew is clearly a euphemism for sexual activities. Now, according to both uh, pagan and Christian writers, feasting and sexual immorality inevitably went together. And there seems little doubt that the discussion of idol food in 1 Corinthians 8-10, through 10, it included the problem of sexual immorality. In fact, Paul's response to the problem of the prostitute in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20 should probably be read in this light. Apparently, some Corinthians were eating in pagan temples and using the prostitutes on offer on such occasions and defending both behaviors with the slogan, All things are law for me in 1 Corinthians 6-12 and 1 Corinthians 10-23. As we're talking about to rise up and play in 1 Corinthians 10.7, it alludes to Exodus 32.6, which is a reference to prostitution on a festival occasion in a pagan temple. Revelation 2.14 may supply evidence of such activity in Asia Minor. The, the church in uh, Pergamum is guilty of eating food, sacrificed to idols, and of sexual immorality. All this speaks for a close literal association between sexual immorality and idolatry. Idolatry is defined by a number of 20th century theologians in terms of making that which is contingent absolute. For Reinhold Niebuhr, for example, idolatry occurs in his own words when we make some uh, contingent and relative vitality to the unconditional principle of meaning. In fact, Niebuhr defines not just idolatry but sin in such terms. She says, Sin is the vain imagination by which man hides the condition, the contingent and dependent nature of his existence and seeks to give the appearance of unconditioned reality. Sin consists of placing such a high value on something that it effectively replaces God in some sense. Both the strength and the weakness of this view of idolatry lies in it being so general. It can be readily applied to almost anything. To label all sin idolatry, as attractive as this might sound, does not do justice to the variety and the depth of the Bible's treatment of sin. Lawbreaking, lawlessness, impurity, and the absence of love are just a few of the many other ways in which Scripture conceives of different forms of sin. Now, Romans 1 does not, in fact, take idolatry to be the pattern of all subsequent sin sins, but rather portrays indulgence in further sins, being given up to various vices as being the appropriate punishment for giving up God in idolatry. Now, 
In attempting to understand idolatry, theologians like Niebuhr take a top-down approach, focusing on God as the absolute one. Another way of proceeding is to go from the bottom up, looking at what it, it is that idolaters do with their idols, what the charge of idolatry consists of, and what the sin of idolatry is compared to. Now, the Bible uses another a number of metaphors to explain how God relates to humankind. God is at different points king, father, bridegroom, woman in labor, judge, and so on and so forth. The relevant metaphor for the dominant, even the most familiar concept of idolatry in the Old Testament is that of marital relations. The depiction of idolatry as sinful sexual relations is introduced in the books of law in Exodus 34, 15-16, and is used extensively in the prophets, especially in Hosea, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Common to all uses of the image is the idea that Israel is married to God, but is unfaithful to her husband. And so the betrayed husband experiences both a fierce desire for revenge and a strong desire to win back his beloved wife. If, uh, if Hosea describes idolatry as prostitution, even more daring is Ezekiel, for whom it is outright nymphomania. And so the marital model is not the sole conception of idolatry in the Old Testament. Another major conception of idolatry appears in the prophets, namely the political model in which God is seen as king and his people as a subject. If, if when God is conceived of as a husband, he demands exclusive love and devotion, as king he demands trust and confidence in his ability to provide for and protect those under his care, loyal servants and obedience. And, and in both the marital and political models, the choice of metaphor was reinforced or even perhaps even occasioned by a potent literal association. Temple prostitution and the deification of human leaders made the marital and the political models of idolatry respectively all the more appropriate. And when the Israelites requested a king in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel was displeased and even prayed to the Lord. The Lord's comforting words in 1 Samuel 8, 7-8 compares the rejection of God's kingship to idolatry. Likewise, the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel denounce Israel's treaties with Assyria and Egypt in terms that add up to nothing less than the charge of idolatry, even though the literal worship of other gods is nowhere in view. Isaiah in Isaiah 31, 1-3 chides the nation for a treaty with Egypt against the threat of Assyria. The reliance upon Egypt is regarded as a form of deification. And since God is Israel's ruler, the nation is supposed to seek protection only from him. To seek it elsewhere is effectively to look to another god. The Egyptians are men and not God. Isaiah 37 describes Egyptian help against the Assyrians as futility. The same word which Isaiah 57.13 and Jeremiah 2.5 employ to condemn the idolatry of the fathers. And in a similar fashion, Jeremiah 2.17-19, it describes a treaty with which Egyptians and with the Assyrians have forsaking of God in favor of someone else. And so the nation is guilty of idolatry because she sought protection from, trusted, and relied upon something other than God. In Ezekiel, the political and marital models merge. The treaties are described in familiar terms of marital unfaithfulness in Ezekiel 16.26. You engaged in prostitution with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, and provoked me uh, to anger with your increased promiscuity. You engaged in prostitution with the Assyrians too in Ezekiel 16.28. And in this ease, the request to foreign powers for protection is compared to adultery and the relation between God the king and the nation as to a husband and a wife.
Now, with a throne room from which God rules the world and the 24 elders who sit on the thrones and wear crowns, ruling the heavenly world on God's behalf, the book of Revelation is not short on political imagery. Revelation portrays God's rule over that of the Roman Empire, which, like most political powers in the ancient world, represented its power in religious terms, claiming for itself ultimate divine sovereignty over the whole world. Its state religion, which featured the worship both of the deified emperor and of the traditional gods of Rome express political loyalty in terms of religious worship. Revelation presents an alternative uh, theocentric vision of the world, referring frequently to worship in its graphic portrayal of the conflict of the sovereignties. Glimpses of worship in heaven punctuate the reports of God's victory over false worship on the earth. Christians are called to resist the deification of the military and the political power represented by the beast and of economic prosperity by Babylon, as in Revelation 18, 12 through 17, by worshiping the true God and living under his rule. Texts involving the, and translated to serve and to worship supply unambiguous evidence that idolaters and even believers were conceived of as serving and obeying their deities. And in, even in ceremonial context, these words, they signify more than just their isolated acts of cultic worship. When it's said that people serve Baal in Judges 10.6, and Judges 10.10, or other gods in Judges 10.13, or the Lord in Judges 10.16, the term implies not only the exclusive nature of uh, the relationship, but the total commitment and, in effect, obedience of the worshiper. That is, to serve a deity involved doing their bidding is made clear in Matthew 6.24 and Luke 16.13, where the service is rendered to a master and the Pauline phrase, bow the knee, which is a synonym for worship. And so even if it's difficult to reduce biblical teaching on idolatry to a simple formula, one element is common to both models, the marital and the political. It's worth talking about. In both cases, the notion of exclusivity is central. In one, the exclusive claims of a husband to his wife, love and affection. In the other, exclusive claims of a sovereign to protect and even provide for his subject and revive and receive their trust and obedience in return. And so idolatry as a concept is an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, to our trust, and to our obedience. Now, then with this said, what qualifies as idolatry? Though there's a lot of and a number of possibilities, including pride that comes to mind, the New Testament unambiguously judges only one thing outside of the literal worship of idols to be idolatry, namely greed. The charge that greed is idolatry appears at least at four points in the New Testament. As stated in Colossians 3.5, greed is idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, 5, the greedy person is an idler. And implied in the mammon saying in Matthew 6.24 and Luke 16.14. And so whether worship of the belly in Romans 16.8 and Philippians 3.19 refers to Jewish preoccupation with few laws or to circumcision, fleshly egocentrism or gluttony, and by extension, greed is difficult to say. And although falling short of explicitly branding greed idolatry, the two sins are treated as comparable in the character and gravity in Job 31, 24 through 28. Philo of Alexander's repeated warning against idolatry of the love of money suggests the Jewish province of the notion. 
Well, according to Philo, the first commandment condemns strongly the, the money lovers who procure gold and silver coins from every side and treasure their hoard like a divine image in a sanctuary, believing it is a source of blessing and happiness of every kind. So in what sense is greed idolatry? Matthew 6.24 in context gives clear support to the idea that worship of mammon instead of God involves love and devotion, using these very words and service and obedience with the notion of rival masters. It also implies a negative judgment on trusting and wealth since the verses which verse 24 effectively introduces Matthew 6, 25 through 34 point to the birds and the lilies in order to inspire trust in the providential care of God. Another indication that the greedy are idlers because they love and they trust and serve money rather than the God that is, that is the greedy are condemned in the Bible in particular for their inert love, misplaced trust, and forbidden service. A virtual synonym for greed, plexiana, in a broad range of material is lovers of money, philgoria, the thought of which is sometimes expressed in the form of, a, of an exhortation like in Hebrews 13.5, keep free from the love of money. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, the rich are not to set their heart on the spiritual organ of love and devotion on their riches as in Psalm 62.10 and 2 Peter 2.14. Now, numerous texts not only observe that the rich trust in the riches, but warn against such reliance as being incompatible with an unacceptable alternative to trusting God. Jeremiah accuses Israel of trusting in her strongholds and treasures in Jeremiah 48.7. Psalm 52.7 states that the one who does not make God his refuge trusts in great wealth. In, in Psalm 49.13, in Psalm 49.15, in Proverbs, the wealth of the riches is their fortress in, in Proverbs 10.15 and their strong city in Proverbs 18.11. But those who trust in the riches will wither as in Proverbs 11.28. And on the other hand, God is the only trust of the poor and those of humble means as in Psalm 34.6 and Psalm 40.17. In Proverbs 18.10 and 11, it, su it suggestively juxtaposes trust in God and trust in money. Proverbs 28:25 A greedy person is contrasted with the one who trusts in the Lord. And so such teaching is carried on in the New Testament where the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12 warns against all active striving for the increase of material possessions and as a means of security in 1 Timothy 6:17, which counsels the rich not to trust in their riches but in God. So the notion of trusting God, not money, it appears throughout the New Testament. In fact, Hebrews 13:5 uh, through 6, it encourages its readers not to love money with the promise of the Lord's help, implying that faith in God is the alternative to finding security in money. Evidence of the greedy serving their wealth is less direct. It is implied in the Bible's frequent condemnation of the greedy for ignoring the social justice and oppressing the poor. Furthermore, the notion of sin as a ruling power can be seen in John 8, 30-36 and Romans 6. Greed is idolatry because uh, the greedy contravene God's exclusive rights to human love, trust, and obedience. So the fundamental question of theology, what do we mean by God, can be answered from a variety of angles by exploring God's various relations to the world and to ourselves. Uh, ironically, the study of idolatry also shows us some insight into the nature of the true biblical God. What constitutes a God? Martin Luther's answer, reflecting on the first commandment in his larger catechism, was whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. 
We wish to confirm this view, but also to emphasize the aspect of love and service. A God is that which one loves, trusts, and serves above all else. This definition suggests the possibility and even the urgency of making the clear making clear the relevance of idolatry to the modern world. Now, in one sense, idolatry is a diagnosis of the human condition to which the gospel is a cure. At root, the problem with humans is not horizontal social problems like sexual immorality and greed, but rebellion against and the replacement of the true and the living God with gods that fail, which leads to these destructive sins. If the story of the human race is a sorry tale of different forms of idolatry, the height of human folly, the good news is that God reconciles his imagers back to himself in Christ alone. And so it's no accident that the prophets envision a time when idols will ultimately be eradicated and replaced by true worship. And so this is why understanding what idols are is so, so important. It's, it's attaching ultimate meaning and ultimate worth to a thing. And, and we can do that. Uh, the question is, what do you love the most? Think about that for a minute. And, and your answer to that, your first answer to that should be the Lord. But sadly, sometimes it's it's not, right? It's not. That's where we need to be. That's why we have the ministry of the Spirit. The Spirit uses the Word in our life to bring conviction. And conviction is a blessing of the Lord to His people, who He loves, who He's redeemed, who He calls by His name. So here's the thing. This is why how we take and apply this teaching about idolatry to contentment. As we see what various ways in which we have idols in our life, what we're seeing is the various ways in which we ourselves are not satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ himself, that, that he alone in and of himself is enough and always will be. That's Paul's point in Philippians 4.13. The point is, is that Paul is making there in Philippians 4.13, by the way, is not to paint that paint that on your face or or on your shirt, put it on a shirt or, or as a logo or use it as a mantra or something like that. Rather, rather, what Paul is doing is he's even showing the various ways in which we can be prone to self-sufficiency. He's urging the Philippians, he's urging us, by the way, to, to find Christ to be truly sufficient for all that we need in every situation, in every way. That is why contentment is a disposition of the heart. And, and the, this is why we must be satisfied in the sufficiency of Christ. Paul learned this, he said, by the way, in Philippians 4. He learned this through the various situations and the circumstances of his life under God's providence. As God worked in his life, he worked that God was, by the Spirit, was working in Paul's life the, the more, more and more to understand the truth of the gospel and how it applies to his heart, to his life. And this is one way that we can look at this issue of of contentment through the prism of what the Bible says about idolatry. Because let's ask the question, where are you finding ultimate meaning, ultimate value, and worth in? What are those things that where where you're spending your money? Where what are you uh, spending your most time and your in your hobbies and those things? Is it on the things of the Lord? Even even the things of the Lord. If we prioritize the ministry of, of the Lord, you know, in our local church above the the Lord and enjoying His grace, that could even be an idol. We can make even the ministry of the Word uh, in in our local church an idol, and we have to repent of that as well. An idol, remember, is where we find supreme meaning and value and worth in. 
And our ultimate satisfaction is not to even be in the ministry of the local church. It is to be in the giver of the gift of God himself, in the person and work of Christ himself. See, Christ is sufficient in and of himself. And the only way we know that is as we look at him in the word. This is why, this is why Israel faced such severe divine discipline. Because they refused. They were stubborn. And they refused to be satisfied in, in the grace and in the mercy and in the goodness in the covenant faithfulness, there's a there's an actual Hebrew word, hased. It means covenant faithfulness of God. God is faithful to His word, and this is why God disciplines those whom He loves, as Hebrews 12 says. He disciplines us because He loves us. God is loving us in the midst of of discipline. Our yes, our fellowship with God can be hindered. If we will not confess our sins, as 1 John 1, 9 says, we will have our fellowship with God be uh, uh, disrupted or hindered, if you will. But, but that's why we are to do, as John Calvin says, and to understand that repentance is, just, is not just the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. That is why when with the very first point uh, on that Wittenberg door that Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to uh, on that German castle door at Wittenberg in Germany all those years ago that launched the Protestant Reformation. His very first point was that the Christian life is one of repentance. See, repentance not only brings us into the door, it's to be ongoing in our life, as Calvin was saying. Jesus came to and brought a message of repentance the people didn't like that message it's a tough message repent repent of your sin don't just see don't just see your sin don't just coddle it and say all is well here by god's grace with his help through his spirit turn from it and turn and trust the lord jesus look to christ trust christ that's what the Christian life is about. That's what Calvin is saying. That's what the Bible is saying that the Christian is to do. We're, we need to ling to do this. We need to linger long and hard on the love of God, the covenant faithfulness of God revealed in his word. And that, that's, in, that's in the Old Testament. That's in the New Testament. It's personified. It finds its apex, goal, culmination, whatever, however you want to say that, in the person and work of Christ. Christ is altogether lovely. He is altogether beautiful. He is altogether lovely. If we are going to be content in, as Paul is in Philippians 4, if we're going to have our idols exposed through the ministry of the Spirit as we hear the Word, as we read it, as we study it, as we memorize the Word, then guess what? This is going to help us. It's going to help us to see the various ways in which we are prone to wander and we feel it as that great hymn, prone to leave the God we love. The goal here is that we would be able to sing of the sufficiency of God's grace as in that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Because the only way that you can truly sing that hymn is if you're truly satisfied and truly enjoying the treasure that is in Christ himself. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of the Equipping You and Grace podcast. Until next time when we uh, interview another great author and we talk about this uh, topic as well uh, on another episode. 
I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Equipping and Grace. I hope that it's been helpful. I hope that it's been helpful for you to consider this topic uh, from both Testaments, the Old Testament, the New Testament, in light of the personal work of Christ, in light of the fact that if you're a Christian, you because of Christ, you are signed, and he has signed you and sealed you in the blood of Christ. He, Because of the resurrection, you have new life. You are indwelt by the Spirit. You are his, and he is yours forever. You are held fast down to the nanosecond. But and yet we still need to grow. We still need to repent. We still need to continue to trust and continue to grow. We all need this. We all need to grow. So I hope that this has been helpful. And until next Monday or Wednesday, may God bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.